If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 746. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. You've already heard about that. Get the free class and purchase one or 20 or more classes there. I do have a coupon code still, Black Friday 2022. I'm running it into this week. So this really is going to be the last week to do it. I extended it out one more week. So you can still pick that up. Here we are, December 6th, and you can still get that 30% off. Of course, if you're on my email list, you get the links. It's the best way to do it. Get on that email list and look for those links so you go right to the class that you want to buy. And these classes are awesome. If you like the podcast, you're going to like the classes. You can also support the show by going to McClanahan, I'm sorry, to brianmcclanahan.com. Excuse me, click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. Or if you're watching on YouTube, click on the little heart under the video. You can uh, throw a few pennies my way there or go to anchor.fm, subscribe there. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff by clicking on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Or, of course, you can purchase one of my books. I've got a lot of those. They make great stocking, stocking stuffers or a gift under the tree. So all of that does help support the show. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review where you get your podcast. Leave a comment on YouTube. That helps the algorithm so people see the, the channel and, and then listen to the show. And share it around on social media. Wherever you can do that, you do help grow the audience. All right, well... Last week, I was on the Tom Woods show, and we were talking about Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, and that was a, a episode based on the Monday episode I did last week on Ron DeSantis. And he asked me a question in that uh, interview. He said, well, look, if you could give any advice to a Republican candidate, or any candidate, what would it be to try to win the election? And my response was, I would go out and essentially campaign on the same things that Trump did in 2016 that got him the election. And it was a campaign that was very Pat Buchanan-esque. Because you see, I still really believe that Americans are generally kind of this you know, 1940s Democrat. I think most Americans are in that line when it comes to what they think the presidency should do or what they think the American economy should be like or what how they view America particularly the base for the Republican Party now, which has become much more rural, blue-collar, white working class in America. Now, we know they appeal to other groups beyond that, but that's what got the Trump election uh, elected, right? That's what, that's what won, Trump won the election on. And, and if you look at the areas that he won, like you know, very little counties here in Wisconsin, places that Hillary Clinton didn't campaign because she thought she had them locked up, he won in the Rust Belt. And so winning in the Rust Belt is essential if you want to win the presidency. I mentioned on the show, that, on Tom's show, that, and on this show too, that I don't think the Republicans really have much of a shot unless they run a perfect campaign 
to win in 2024. Now, you know, Ron DeSantis could do that. Donald Trump could do that. Somebody else could do that. I actually prefer someone like Rand Paul. But the fact is, they need to be running a campaign that's very much in line with what Pat Buchanan said we need to do in 1992. And Pat Buchanan was simply echoing what Jimmy Carter had essentially said in 1979 and Ronald Reagan had run on during the 1980s. These were the Reagan Democrats. It's the same thing that George Wallace tried to appeal to in 68 and 72. He was trying to get these disaffected voters, these people that believed that the elites in Washington had left them behind and they weren't going to do anything for them. This is what Jimmy Carter ran on in 76. He was the outsider. He was the governor who was going to come in and change Washington, D.C., clean up corruption, do all those things. It's Grover Cleveland-esque, right, from the 19... I'm sorry, from the 1880s, when Grover Cleveland was the guy that was going to clean up corruption in 1884. It's what Americans look to. Cleveland, of course, was a governor of New York. You have these people in these states they are going to clean up corruption. Now, can Ron DeSantis channel that to win the election? I don't know. Trump talked about it, right? Draining the swamp, cleaning up corruption. This is what people want to hear. They know D.C. is corrupt. They know Joe Biden's an empty suit, that he simply is being run by the bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., that he doesn't really make any decisions. We've seen it over and over again. Stand here, say this, walk here, you know, don't deviate, call on these people. This is what you have to do. It's carefully orchestrated. Everyone sees it and knows it. The, the Democrat partisans don't care. They don't see it. But people with a brain and eyes see it and know what's going on. And so a campaign that would very much be in line with that, with cleaning up corruption, immigration, uh, you know, immigration reform, blue collar jobs, uh, you know, stopping inflation, ending the cancel war, the cancel culture war, the woke, the woke war on American culture. It doesn't matter if you're talking about Lincoln, which of course is being vandalized, or the Confederate statues which are being taken down, or all the stuff that's going on in schools. Uh, you know, the critical race theory, all these things that people are not very happy about. If you could run on a campaign like that, I think you're going to win the election. Even Joe Biden. Look, Joe Biden's nemesis or his, his, the way that he runs, I'm not Trump. But when he gets into office, what does he do? Well, he says, I can't do anything about COVID. That's a state issue. Same thing Trump said later on in 2020. He started going, now Trump made mistakes early on, but 2020 into 2021, I can't do anything. This is, this is the states. You know, this, the states have to handle this. Uh, you know, Biden's now out there talking about make, you know, uh, buy American, right? American manufacturing. The same thing Trump was saying in 2016 and 2017. The Democrats for years campaigned on legal immigration only. Uh, this is going back into the 1960s, 70s. The Democrats were very concerned about the impact of illegal immigration on American jobs, particularly union jobs. They didn't like that. And so if you have a candidate that will go out and talk about these things, trade, trade imbalances, making sure that we stop inflation, not spending too much money. These are things that are important for most Americans who are trying to make it when they see their, their grocery bill going up 100 to $200 a week because food prices have skyrocketed or fuel costs when they have to drive to work or whatever it is. These are things, these are tangible things that Americans see and feel, and those are the things you run on. But the other things that are tangible are when your kid goes to school and they're getting uh, material in, those class, in that classroom that you don't think they should be getting. Uh, parents controlling the lives of their children in education. Now, of course, this is a think locally, act locally issue. You can control those school boards. If you don't like what's being done in your local schools, 
get out there and get on the school boards or at least go to the school board meetings and really hammer them over this. Now, of course, for the Biden administration, uh, you know, or for the left, you're going to be labeled a domestic terrorist, I guess, to do that. I, I don't know. I mean, this is something they were doing. But you need to be thinking locally and acting locally in these ways. And the president, whether it's DeSantis or Trump or Biden, really doesn't have much of an impact on that. It's Now, Ron DeSantis in the state of Florida does. Where I said Ron DeSantis in Florida has been great. I'm not so certain he's going to be a great president because I think he's still going to abuse power. Now, again, what president isn't? This is where I've said that you know someone like Rand Paul would probably be better than any of them because I think he would be much more restrained than a Ron DeSantis or a Donald Trump. But regardless... Um, I want to talk about a piece that was actually published on Pat Buchanan's website. Um, and it was actually, you know, uh, at the Washington Post. It was by uh, Michael Babelian. And uh, it talks about Pat's impact on America, really with that 1992 speech that he made, which I talk about in my McClanahan Academy class on Southern cultural and intellectual history. I bring up this particular speech because it is an important speech uh, that really changed the direction of the Republican Party. And so the piece says this, In the long run, history will validate Donald Trump's stand on a border wall. Patrick Buchanan, the former Nixon and Reagan White House aide and Republican presidential candidate, wrote in 2019. Why? Because mass migration from the global south is the real existential crisis of the West. Having proselytized for an AFTA's repeal, isolationism, and the Buchanan fence across the Mexican border decades before Trump burst into the political arena, Buchanan urged the president to fend off the multiracial, multiethnic, multicultural changes he had long railed against. The op-ed ended with a catchphrase with odious origins, America first is still a winning hand. Now, look, this is 2019, and... Um, I think that and Buchanan was, was talking about this in 1992. So were other people before this. Buchanan is simply understanding something. Americans do like that. That Make America Great Again slogan was beautiful slogan. It was something that people could rally around. A lot of people could rally around. And I think it still resonates. You're still calling on the greatness of an attitude more than anything else and an image. Now, it could be a mythical image. It could, but there's there's something there to that. And it's kind of this, you know, roll up your sleeves, rugged individualism, do your work. Let's be, you know, let's be great Americans. Let's, let's have a great economy. Let's have a, a prosperous people. These are things that make us great. And it, and it has a, a very community-oriented feel to it, a very local feel to it in a lot of ways. It's not just about make America great again because I want Massachusetts to be great. And I don't live in Massachusetts. It's make America great again because America is where I am. It's the town you live in. It's the state you live in. That's what you feel with that. It has an emotional appeal to it. And if you live in a place or you grew up thinking these things and now you're looking around and America looks like a war zone and the left has run roughshod over everything, you have no idea what's happening. You, you're looking around, and this is not the America I grew up in. And there was actually a thread about this I saw on Twitter talking about California and how people in California that grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even in the 80s in California are looking around, and California looks like a war zone, and they don't know what happened. It's like they're shell-shocked. They have this, they have this, what the heck just happened to California? Well, 
There have been other parts of the United States that have been going through that longer than that. Uh, they, those people in California loved that 40-year period in California where everything was beautiful. Uh, my, my grandparents lived in California in the early 60s. They loved it. And then the late 60s hit and all the hippies showed up and they got out. They could say the same thing, though, about Colorado. I still have family that live in Colorado. And uh, Colorado was beautiful in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And then John Denver, you know, was, uh, you're, you're going to Rocky Mountain High, Colorado, and all the lefties moved out there. And, of course, it changed the state. Now, a lot of people still love Colorado, but it's really different. And my grandmother used to talk about how, uh, you know, a family member was, you know, just not happy with things going on in Colorado. And she said it can't be like 1957 anymore in Colorado. But this is how people feel. And that Make America Great Again resonated with that idea that, hey, we had a time when there was low crime and jobs were prevalent and, um, you know, it felt the schools were normal and it felt normal in America. And this is what people liked. That's what Pat Buchanan was talking about in 1992. It's what Donald Trump was hammering on in 2016. It's what I think is a winning message, even for the Democrats at times. Biden will sound kind of like that because it's what wins. Nobody wants America to be, uh, you know, Detroit right now. Nobody wants America to be the inner cities of the United States because there's crime, there's drugs. I mean, all the stuff that goes on there, the schools are terrible, everything's failing. Nobody wants that. So they don't say, you know, make America these. They want to have America be this place that seemingly is slipping away on a regular basis. So the piece continues, though Buchanan was years removed from the limelight, the fact that he parroted Trump's agenda cast light on the improbable journey of the Republican Party away from Ronald Reagan's principles to take shape as a far more conservative and partisan political force. And this is interesting. He's essentially saying Ronald Reagan was not conservative. And look, if you take my American President's course at McClanahan Academy, I talk about this. Reagan allowed in some people in, in the Reagan movement, in the administration, that were far from conservative. This is the neoconservatives, the East Coast Straussians. I would even say many of the West Coast Straussians. They're not that conservative, and they believe in the Lincoln myth. Ronald Reagan did serious damage to American conservatism during his administration. And one thing, the most important thing, was, was uh, not giving out the appointment to Emmy Bradford uh, for the National Endowment for the Humanities. And he did that because Bill Bennett raised a fit. You can't have a guy that's against Lincoln trying to direct American education. And, or at least how we think about the humanities in America. And that really created a massive fissure in the conservative movement in the 1980s. People don't remember this, but it's very important. The paleoconservatives were pushed aside. People like Pat Buchanan ushered out. They were shown the door. And you had people like Bill Kristol move right in. And that changed American conservatism. The piece continues, identifying the causes of this radical transformation has engrossed political chroniclers for years. Nearly universally, scholars point to Barry Goldwater's seminal role in the rise of modern conservatism in the 1960s. This was followed a decade later by the ascension of the New Right, which radicalized the party by stoking racial grievances and exploiting contentious social issues. As one of its leaders, Howard Phillips, explained at the time, we organized discontent. Now, again, I would dispute some of this. Barry Goldwater was important. I mean, there's no doubt about it. His conscience of a conservative 1964 campaign against Lyndon Johnson, which, by the way, he was trounced. And it, 
I mean, I think that's partly because people were just voting for Johnson because of the Kennedy assassination. But regardless, Goldwater was turning the party at least sort of in a different direction. The most important thing about Goldwater, though, was that Goldwater was turning conservatives to the Republican Party, which was not necessarily in their own best interest. Uh, the Democrat Party, of course, was leaving them, but it left conservatives without a party. And this is what, what George Wallace talked about in 68 and 72. It's essentially what Pat Buchanan recognized in 1992, that the Republican Party didn't really embrace American conservatism. It's why Wallace said there's not a dime's worth of difference between the Republican and Democrat Party. And look, the things that Wallace talked about, I know we can get into the race stuff, and of course, as governor, he was, he was heavy into that. He really tried to distance himself from that by 68 and 72, and he talked more about jobs and um, immigration and things like that. He was looking more at the same stuff that Trump was talking about in 2016 or that Jimmy Carter was talking about in 1976 or in 1979, or that at least at times Ronald Reagan even sounded like. I mean, there's a lot of people that voted for Reagan in the 80s because they thought he was preferable to the very left uh, establishment candidates like Walter Mondale, for example, who was Carter's, you know, who was vice president in the Carter years, who said he would resign when Jimmy Carter gave that crisis of confidence speech. That shows you what that speech was. It was not left wing. Walter Mondale threatened to resign. It shows you how important that is. In Partisans, the conservative revolutionaries who remade American politics in the 1990s, Nicole Hemmer, a scholar at the Obama Presidency Oral History Project at Columbia University and a co-founder of the Washington Post Daily Historical Analysis section, Made by History, makes an insightful contribution to this body of work by examining how a new breed of Republicans propelled the party further to the right in the 1990s, steering it away from Reagan, even as they continue to pledge allegiance to the former president's legacy. Again, this is fascinating how they're saying that Pat Buchanan was steering the party away from Reagan. As I said, Reagan made some mistakes in inviting in the neoconservatives and inviting in uh, the Straussians. He made mistakes. And so Buchanan was calling him on that. Buchanan was reacting to George H.W. Bush in 1992 and saying, you know, wait a second here. This Republican Party now, it's not really conservative. We're not focusing on the things that we need. It's why he ran that independent campaign. Pat Buchanan was Donald Trump before Donald Trump. And before Pat Buchanan, there were other people that were articulating the same position. And it wasn't necessarily Barry Goldwater. It was a Southern tint to American conservatism. It's what the left has never liked. Casting Buchanan as a beacon of this movement, Hemmer tracks the party's adoption of his views and imitation of his pugilistic style despite Buchanan's exile from the GOP after a surprising 1992 presidential run. His exile from the GOP. Again, what does that say about the Republican Party? It's the grand old stupid party. Now, to Pat Buchanan's credit, he's never, he's never, you know, had bad things to say, at least publicly, very much, about the fact that he's very much been ostracized. He's always been Pat Buchanan. He doesn't spend time and waste time going after people that, you know, have done him wrong, essentially, in, in, the, uh, in the GOP. He's always been on the team, you know, rooting for what he thinks are the good guys. He's, all, he's a very loyal individual. If you talk to Pat Buchanan about Richard Nixon, he's always going to defend Nixon. 
Um, and that's one of his enduring qualities. And Pat Buchanan is a loyal person. So, you know, if you, if, if you can, and if you say negative things about Nixon, he's going to counter that. And that's, I mean, that's a, someone who has that kind of loyalty to their friends and people they admired, you, you don't, you, you can't, you can't quantify that. It's so good. Um, I have my, my problems with Nixon. Pat Buchanan, of course, would disagree. But, um, the fact is Buchanan is a very nice person. And again, he's, he's a Southern gentleman, uh, at the end of the day. And that Southern streak is what makes him so important. And it's this Southern streak in politics. The left despises, they hate it. They hate it. They want to get rid of it. While Buchanan's stridency displaced the GOP's country club moors, then House Speaker Newt Gingrich, Newt, Newt Gingrich's, I'm sorry, brash demeanor and combative approach polarized Washington during the 1990s. The politics had always been a, com a combat sport. Both parties had regularly collaborated, excuse me, limiting their biggest confrontations to genuine and consequential disputes throughout the Cold War. Hammer ably recounts the pitched battles between Gingrich and President Bill Clinton, culminating in Clinton's impeachment that shattered the status quo and led Republicans to demonize Democrats, which made coexistence with the opposition, let alone cooperation, repugnant. Gingrich's state of perpetual warfare and constant revolution also purged the GOP of moderates and turned its focus away from governing to a fixation on obstructionism, highlighted by multiple government shutdowns, a playbook followed by congressional Republicans since 2009. Now, this is all Gingrich's fault. Right? I mean, Gingrich went out and he just started fighting these Democrats. And fighting the Democrats was, you see, the Republicans had been in the minority for so long, they were just happy to sit at the table. Gingrich did change that. You can give Newt Gingrich credit. He did take the war to them. And that's something that Republicans have started to do a little more, though I think they're more happy again to kind of sit back and sit at the table and let the Democrats really run the show. Uh, Gingrich, in so many ways, I mean, you could say Gingrich was pretty far right. Um, I don't think so. I mean, Gingrich was an, an astute politician, um, far on the right, not necessarily. And uh, I mean, we could, I could quibble with Gingrich and all these people about you know, their view of American history. That's, they're, they're all proposition nation, nation mythmakers, all of them. Buchanan's not. I will say that. Um, so this puts Pat Buchanan on the outside of that group even. A new generation of right-wing media pundits encouraged these tactics. As Hammer points out, Rush Limbaugh, Laura Ingram, Ann Coulter, Pat Robertson, Dinesh D'Souza, and lesser-known copycats chastised Republicans for striking deals in a constitutional framework designed for a compromise. No matter how intractable or mean-spirited they seemed, their capacity to induce outrage and deliver political entertainment skyrocketed their popularity on talk radio and cable television. Limbaugh, the most prominent of the bunch, emerged as the party's kingmaker. So, again, getting into some of the stuff that happened in the 1990s. Look, I mean, there is no doubt that talk radio and some media allowed for the Republicans to have a bigger voice in American national, quote-unquote, politics than at any time since really the 1920s. And what's amazing about Limbaugh, you know, you go back and look at Rush Limbaugh, and his, his uh, television show was really the beginning of Fox News. His television show was funny. Uh, Rush Limbaugh was able to do things because he was funny. And the Democrats can't stand it, couldn't stand it. I mean, when Limbaugh was alive, they couldn't stand it. This was made his show so popular. He was a funny individual, and he was good at what he did. He was great at media. And I mean, 
no one wants to give him credit for that on the left, but they've not been able to come up with anybody that's like Rush Limbaugh. And I don't know if we'll have anybody like him again for a long time. Uh, he was he was a head and shoulders above anybody else that's ever tried this. Um, there are some people that are pretty good at it, but no one is good as Limbaugh. Uh, considering Hemmer's description of the GOP's evolution, it comes as no surprise that by 2020, there were only remnants of Reagan's legacy. Republicans maintained conservative positions on religious liberty, gay rights, and other social issues, and espoused a strong military and lower taxes while paying lip service to a smaller government and budgetary restraint. Ah, you see... They just paid lip service to smaller government and budgetary restraint. They started spending money. Again, this is because I said the Republican Party is really just another side of the same coin. There's not a dime's worth of difference. Pat Buchanan offered a critique of that. He offered a critique of it. And it's what has always been the problem with the Buchananites and the the Make America Great Again people. These people are have always been there. It's working class, white working class America primarily, but rural white working class America or Rust Belt Americans. It's these people that that really believe that there's something fundamentally broken about the establishment and the elites in society and that they need to clean out corruption. It's what Trump capitalized on in 2016 and what Buchanan was talking about for a long time. Unbending positions on the hot button issues, however, bore little resemblance to Reagan's. His willingness to raise taxes, support modest gun control measures, and grant amnesty to 3 million undocumented immigrants would have made him an anathema among current Republicans. Not not really. <laughs> uh, George W. Bush? <laughs> George H.W. Bush? Uh, Mitt Romney? John McCain? Mike Pence? I mean, come on. Uh, they all were willing to do it. He's, not, he's, he's an anathema to a certain part of or that would be an estimate to a certain part of the Republican Party. Uh, you know. But the thing is that this, uh, this establishment party is what National Review wants. It's why they, I talked about last Monday, they're interested in a President DeSantis because they think he would be more in line with compromising with Democrats on a whole lot of things. Just as significant, the party's populist rhetoric and isolationism turned its back on free markets and globalization, concepts that it erstwhile cast in divine terms. From a stylistic standpoint, the differences were starker. Reagan, the great communicator, beamed with optimism when espousing America's virtues as a shining city upon a hill. Ah. Um, Reagan was optimistic with this Puritan rhetoric. Buchanan was gloomy, resentful, and boiling with rage. Buchanan's boiling with rage. I mean, how stupid. Not boiling with rage. I mean, the Make America Great Again slogan is not rage. It's not hate. It's, hey, we had this great time. Let's bring it back. This is good. It's very positive. Pat Cadell was part of that message. And Pat Cadell was part of the message in 1979. And then, of course, you had, uh, you know, there's no rage in 68 or 72. It's people are... Uh, they're not happy with the direction of America, but it's it's a longing for something that they thought was better. They're looking around, seeing a lot of crime and a lot of you know immoral activity, and they don't like it. They want their cities to be clean. They want their schools to be good. They want they want their they want peace and security. These are things they want. Isolationism. Isolation is not isolation. It's it's uh, you know non-intervention. It's not isolation. It's, again, all the terminology. This is Washington Post, so you're going to get this stuff. 
But that's not what Pat Buchanan, he's not isolationist at all. And this message is not isolationist. It's we're great and we're going to do things ourselves and produce things ourselves. And of course, the Democrats have become globalists too, right? There was a religious war going on in this country, Buchanan declared at the 1992 GOP convention, for instance. It's a cultural war for the soul of America. No one personified this dramatic shift in temperament more than Trump. He gleefully belittled his opponents with pejorative nicknames, mocked venerated public officials such as John McCain, and made sexist, racist, and xenophobic remarks. <laughs> he gleefully belittled his opponents with pejorative nicknames. Venerated public officials. In other words, he takes on the establishment. This is what Pat Buchanan was talking about in 1992, but it's not rage. It's pointing out these people are all in, in league together. Again, it's a very Southern look at American politics. When protesters clash with the supporters, his campaign rallies carry the vibe of professional wrestling events. In one instance, Trump urged the audience to knock the crap out of them. I mean, again, What's the difference in that than Maxine Waters running out and saying you got to get in their face, you got to fight them, you got to attack them? I mean, Democrats have been doing this stuff for years. When the Republicans do anything, well, then it's bad stuff. Despite their hand-wringing by party leaders like Paul Ryan, Trump's dominance became evident during the 2016 Republican convention when the delegates, mimicking the rowdier crowds at his rallies, chanted, lock her up, and repeated calls to imprison Hillary Clinton. Paul Ryan was a disaster for the Republicans as... Uh, in, in the House of Representatives. He was awful. And he's exactly what you think of when you when you look at John McCain, Mitt Romney, George W. Bush. This is what National Review, this is what the moderate Republicans, is what they want. It's what they think they can get. And they think that's a winning strategy. It's Democrat light. I'm telling you, Democrat light doesn't win. Ever. What wins is Pat Buchanan. It's been proven over and over again. While Hammer and others, Dana Milbanks, the destructionist, comes to mind, have comprehensively explored the roots of the GOP's metamorphosis over the past 60 years, the Democrats' failure to effectively challenge this brand of conservatism has received less scrutiny. As Democrats moved to the right under Bill Clinton, they allowed Republicans to set the agenda and, with a few exceptions like the Affordable Care Act, spent most of their energy trying to preserve the liberal accomplishments of the great society rather than offering compelling alternatives. That's a really strange statement. I had to pause on that for a second. So offering compelling alternatives to the great society. In other words, they became conservative and they weren't innovators anymore. But that was their grand vision. I mean, the New Deal, the great society, the fair deal, the square deal, the new nationalism. We all get the raw deal out of it. But I mean, this is what it is. So th this is that was their grand vision, guns and butter. Lots of big wars, spend money in Ukraine, have big social programs. This is what they want. So there, there's no alternative to this. This is their vision. It's just working with a little bit to try to make it more palatable to people now when they see it doesn't really work all the time. Their focus on national elections also ceded control of state governments to the GOP, allowing Republicans to enact ever more extreme legislation on the abortion and gun control issues over the past three decades. Oh my goodness, right? This is... Uh, they forgot about thinking locally and acting locally. Again, it's because it's, it's not just the Democrats. The Republicans did the exact same thing. They're, the laser beam focus on the center is a problem. Now, Republicans, the reason why Republicans took state house after state house is because people recognized that the Democrats are very destructive when they control things. And they don't want that in their state. They don't want it in their cities. If they have anything to say about it, they want to get it out of there. 
The more pressing question is why the GOP's base has been so willing to tolerate, if not condone, crass behavior, racist overtones, political violence, and authoritarian threats to democracy, even in the wake of the January 6th to 2021 assault on the Capitol and Trump's far-fetched stolen election claims. This collective mindset has granted his cult-like status. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, he famously boasted in 2016. It's like incredible. Political observers have offered economic insecurity, racism, xenophobia, globalization, gerrymandering, misinformation, siloed media consumption, social media, and authoritarian tendencies as a credible yet frightening list of explanations. For anyone studying the rise of right-wing extremism, the next step is to go beyond making these diagnoses to find a cure for them. So again, uh, this is a piece, Pat put it on his website because it talks about him. And of course, it's hilarious. I mean, um, you know, Bobolin, Bobolian, or however you want to say his name, is a, do- a doofus. But he's pointing out that Buchanan was a shift. And that's, uh, that's something that's important to understand. But again, there would have been, I mean, Pat Buchanan is important, but you have to go back even before Goldwater uh, you know, to look at some of the origins of American conservatism. But in the you know, 1960s, just after Goldwater, you start really seeing the Southern influence of conservatism pulling out, right? Taking, taking that side and breaking off from the Republicans. It's the Republican Party that's the problem. It always has been. Uh, people have talked about this for a long time, but it always has been. Okay, so hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow. See you then.